Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week in tech news, we saw that uh, Apple has announced that they are re reportedly cutting production on the iPhone 12 mini by some 70%, perhaps an indication that they were just a little too optimistic on how the iPhone mini would, uh, would go. Uh, Ross, what's your hot take on the uh, iPhone mini production? So it's um, a rare exception in what was a phenomenally successful uh, launch uh, for Apple. It's, uh, it's an interesting product. It was pretty warmly received, I think, by, by reviewers, and it came on the heels of the second-generation iPhone SE. So Apple has been able to... Uh, have some success with that smaller phone form factor, kind of a throwback uh, in some ways to uh, earlier iPhones that were a lot smaller. Certainly one of the challenges with making a 5G, uh, a small iPhone is that uh, 5G tends to be much, um, uh, much more demanding on the battery. And so, you know, that's, that's particularly a challenge in a, in a smaller form factor. And uh, now we're seeing rumors that Apple is even considering adding even bigger batteries uh, for the next generation of iPhones. So it, um, it's something that, uh, you know, may, they may be getting feedback, customer feedback on throughout the line, uh, even the, the much larger devices that can accommodate a, a larger battery. But I also wonder if there's some element of you know, if I'm going to get a 5G phone, if that's important to me, I am probably a more aggressive consumer of internet-based media, of video, and the smaller screen just uh, falls short when compared to the powerful processor and the and and the fast uh, internet connection that that I can achieve. You know, and the superior camera that I can achieve with these with these other devices, whereas the iPhone SE may have been segmented to segmented more clearly to a budget conscious uh, a consumer who was more willing to put up with those limitations and didn't, uh, didn't have the 5G radio, so the battery life wasn't as uh, limited. Pre-pandemic, we certainly saw battery life being, I think, one of the, the core features of any smartphone. Uh, you know, arguably the camera had already gotten very good on a large number of smartphones. So we were seeing what I would consider only marginal progress on the camera. Screens had gotten large. We'd already made that transition. And so the next big push was in bigger batteries. Then we went into the pandemic and everybody started talking about uh, a new normal, a normal where we're traveling a lot less, we're staying closer to home. And so the need for a bigger battery probably wasn't uh, wasn't there. And so it's interesting to me that that uh, these rumors for the iPhone 13 will all have bigger batteries across the full slate of offerings, which which certainly suggests to me that the new normal will look a lot like the old normal, that we'll be out and about a lot, that we'll be traveling a lot. And, and maybe even if we're just at home, we still want a battery that we don't have to, uh, to plug in. You know, certainly that was one of the... Um, the key features of of the new Mac is that it seems to 
have a, a wrong, a long runtime on its current charge. So you can actually be around the house with your laptop without having to, uh, to charge it. I think also we didn't really see much of a price delta between the iPhone mini and the iPhone 12, just $100. So there isn't a big delta there. I do wonder if over time, if you could create a price delta there, if you might see people actually opting to have multiple phones, especially if they can move the the numbers or, you know, if you're using iMessage, then it doesn't really matter. And you maybe have a small phone for certain activities. You have a bigger phone for another activity and you're just grabbing one of your, one of your phones as you head out the door for whatever activity. So I actually think we, we could possibly over time start to see people carrying multiple phones. Of course, we'll have to figure out what the, uh, carrier model looks like for that and how we're paying for these devices to be, to be connected. But, um, uh, it does seem clear that people want bigger screen phones with greater real estate and they want, um, you know, bigger batteries as well. Yeah. A few follow-ups on that. Um, you know, with the, uh, Mac uh, M M one based Macs, you know, those were competing against Intel, uh, processors and AMD processors in terms of battery life. Uh, whereas the iPhone competes against other arm based processors. Now, Apple, uh, does a very good job with their uh, ARM-based phone chips, uh, particularly when it comes to performance, um, almost always at, at the front of the pack um, or you know, certainly near the front of the pack, uh, but um, you know, just, just kind of a different class of, uh, of competition. And the other thing on 5G is that you know, whenever Apple uh, announces, let's say uh, this coming September, you know, we'll have had another year of build out. And even if people bought a 5G iPhone 12, there, and even if they were out and about, uh, they likely did not have uh, access to that coverage uh, very often. But of course, another year, another year of infrastructure build out, T-Mobile uh, having a, <clears throat> an announcement yesterday about you know, how it's continuing to build out its 5G network, how it's going to build out millimeter wave technology, putting out new plans to really incentivize people to move up to full unlimited 5G. So uh, as you drive that level of coverage, of course, you're going to drive battery consumption as well. Well, and it, and the, to me, the real promise of 5G is in environments with heavy device congestion. So mm -hmm. that's why we see 5G for the consumer market really being driven by what might happen in stadiums. We haven't been in stadiums over the last year, right? But, but it does look like we're going to be back in stadiums. I saw the Texas Rangers announced that they would have a, a full capacity available for their opening sure. day in April. Probably doesn't surprise you too much uh, <laughs> of that happening in Texas. Here in DC, we're still trying to figure out if we're going to have fans at all during any part of the season. But uh, I think that you know, that's where 5G starts to become interesting when you've got a geofence location with heavy device density at, at given intervals. And so we'll see, you know, the, the real promise of that start to come here in, in the years ahead. Uh, in, in other news, we saw that Christie's in a first of its kind uh, through a, a major auction house auctioned off a piece of uh, 
digital identity, I guess, through an, uh, an NFT for $69 million. Uh, the artist known as Beeple, digital artist, had previously only sold a, a print for $100 and sold the, their first piece for $69 million, which I think, if nothing else, will drive a lot of other digital artists to uh, look at the auction house opportunities and, and what NFTs can offer them. Uh, in many ways, NFTs have been a, a hot topic for the last week or two. We've seen people uh, auctioning off their uh, their tweets. We know that um, the original tweet was uh, was put up as an NFT as well. Uh, NFTs, of course, are non-fungible tokens. They're unique files that live on the blockchain and uh, allow you to verify your ownership of, of digital art. In the case of things like tweets, it doesn't mean that you actually own the underlying tweet. The, the underlying tweet will still exist out in the public do domain if it's available publicly, but um, you'll, you'll be able to verify over the blockchain your unique ownership. So some of this, I think, is a proof in concept of how we might use the blockchain. I do think it has interesting you know, interesting opportunities. Uh, I don't expect all digital art to sell in the multi-million dollar range, but um, we'll, we'll see what else can come and be sold as an NFT. I think there's probably a lot of things that we'll see sold as NFTs moving forward. And I and this is obviously just part of this bigger transition to digitizing everything. This is the, the digital identity for a lot of physical goods. Yeah, the, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Sean, the, um, his first piece uh, or his most valuable piece prior to October had sold for $100. But since then, uh, he has just been uh, escalating the, the prices uh, with, uh, by, by using NFT. Uh, it says he sold his uh, first series for uh, $66,666.60. And in December, he sold a series of works for $3.5 million. Uh, so, um, you know, big, big fan of the number six, uh, certainly. But, uh, you know, this is a very kind of abstract uh, concept. And uh, it raises all kinds of questions as to what ownership really means. Uh, you know, you have some, if you have an NFT, you have some rights to display the work in progress, but, you know, you don't own, uh, you know, the, the right to resell it um, or, you know, to, to license it. Um, so I, I guess a lot of those issues are going to be worked out over the, the next few years. It, um, you know, at this point, it, it seems somewhat like a, a trophy, uh, although I guess just like any other asset, uh, if it appreciates in value, uh, presumably the, the owner can resell it for, for even more. It feels to me that this is also a clear indication of just how much liquidity is in the marketplace mm -hmm. right, right now. Sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Jack Dorsey's original tweet, just setting up my Twitter that he uh, published in uh, March of 20, uh, 2006, is currently at 2.5 million. So if you want to get in on the, the <laughs> craze now of NFT, you could buy that first tweet 
for a, a cool 2.5 million. The people. other question becomes where, when will we see sort of the first eBay of, of NFTs, right? The first real marketplace emerge for this because uh, these, these are obviously eyebrow raising numbers, but uh, there is likely a long chain of memorabilia uh, and, and nostalgia inducing things uh, that would fetch uh, perhaps more modest fees, but would have a, a far broader audience. Yeah, and you do see valuables by by scent is kind of becoming a, a key platform there where uh, you can sell your your tweets or other things like that. But there there's probably a, a lot of other opportunities to build out the infrastructure of of you know what could could be there. Uh, and in our final news story of the uh, the day, I'm sure we will talk talk more about NFTs in the weeks to come. And our final news story, we thought we'd hit on news that uh, as of December 2020, more than 120 million Americans had streamed YouTube and YouTube TV on their TVs of all places. So, of course, YouTube has been a, a very popular platform on mobile phones and computers. Uh, arguably, they haven't made historically a lot of inroads into the television because you'd have to still go through a, a computer. Now, as the televisions are becoming connected and people are going directly to streaming services, Google has has noted and YouTube has noted that uh, the television is their fastest growing screen as people start to move uh, in there. They note that about a fourth of YouTubers of YouTube's logged in connected TV viewers last December watched YouTube and YouTube, YouTube TV content almost exclusively on their TV screen. So people are tuning in to YouTube and YouTube TV on their TVs and they are uh, w- w- watching it uh, almost exclusively in some cases. So well, there's certainly a lot more long form entertainment on YouTube than there was in the services early days. And uh, I would be surprised if there were a digital platform where TV wasn't uh, the fastest growing uh, a digital uh, video service where TV wasn't the fastest growing platform uh, over the course of 2020 with people spending so much more time at home. Uh, the timing of the announcement is interesting as we've seen increased momentum from companies that have uh, tremendous content assets. Uh, Disney Plus, I think, recently announced that it had crossed the 100 million a subscriber uh, barrier, which is just, uh, uh, you know, very impressive growth. Uh, and of course, HBO Max stepping up its efforts, uh, CBS rebranding to Paramount Plus, uh, announcing a couple of tiers. So uh, YouTube, of course, has not traditionally invested heavily in proprietary content. And this is just, I think, uh, Google's way of saying, hey, we can be competitive, we can offer uh, we can be competitive without necessarily investing in all this uh, original programming. Uh, also, a sign from YouTube today that it's uh, this week that it's cracking down a bit on shared memberships, uh, going after uh, customers who may have uh, where, where they're detecting asset, uh, detecting access from outside the home. Uh, so. 
you know, this is an area where Netflix historically has uh, been willing to let a lot more slide than uh, I think, for example, HBO uh, had had in the past. Um, I've can recall stories about HBO getting more aggressive in this area in the past, but um, you know, as they need to continue to invest to stay competitive, uh, it's not surprising to see them trying to enforce more of the membership constraints. You see it especially among younger cohorts. I saw stats that as many as 35% of millennials share passwords for streaming across uh, their their households. Maybe they're using their their parents' Netflix account or they're using a friend's Netflix account. They're sharing that. So I think as, as Netflix uh, grows to maturity, they will have to look at this more closely. They haven't really needed to look at this because it was all about customer acquisition. It was about ga- gaining viewers when they were looking at redistribution rights and other things right. like that. The, the argument that it's viral marketing to have you know, someone on the account. So. Yeah, you wanted people watching the your, you know, your content and growing it. Now, arguably, uh, we're to the point where everybody knows what Netflix offers. They know who they are, so uh, they'll need to monetize that. And also, I think the the dynamics are different, where they're not redistributing as much content because now all of the studios are distributing their their content directly. Right. And so Netflix is going to be be forced to rely more heavily on original content to drive viewers. And that means they're going to have to pay for that original content. I don't know if the, you know, the, the economics are different, but my presumption is that they probably are. It's probably more costly to produce original content, especially when some of that content isn't, isn't good or won't be good. And so, you know, they'll have to monetize that regardless, even if they don't have people viewing it because they'll own the exclusive rights of that. So I think there's a lot of uh, economics that are changing for them. And uh, they're going to have to confront that moving forward. Not just competitive pressure from the big uh, Hollywood studios, but also competitive pressure in bidding for promising uh, productions that uh, that they have the rights to, uh, versus you know two of the largest companies in the world in in Amazon and Apple, uh, which uh, which of course have competing services and also have to make uh, those kinds of investments because they don't have the rights to these um, incredible franchises like like Marvel or, or Harry Potter. Yeah, and I, I think even those studios will look at ways of... Oh, sure. Yeah, they're launching original stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, launching original stuff and also buying, you know, buying stuff that's ready to go. Sure. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot more content that's going direct to, uh, to streaming. And, uh, and we're also seeing the serialization of content as opposed to p- buying pilots. You're going straight to, to uh, serialization. It's allowing you to get bigger stars so that the, the dynamics there are changing quite significantly. That's probably a good place to uh, wrap up this week's episode of Techspansive. We thank you for joining us. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin.